Hello and welcome to The Art of Intelligence, the podcast that brings you practical tips and nuances on all things data science and artificial intelligence from the perspective of leading voices in the industry. We hope you will listen in to our weekly conversations with industry experts, ranging from data scientists, managers, investors, and all the way to recruiters who share the experiences in working with AI in the industry. I'm your host, Dionisio Nunes, and in this episode, I speak to Edward Harris, who is co-founder and CEO at Sharpest Minds on the subject of job dynamics in the data science industry. Without further ado, my conversation with Edward Harris. Edward, thank you for coming to the Art of Intelligence. Could you briefly describe yourself to our audience? I am the co-founder of a company called Sharpest Minds. We are a mentorship program for machine learning and data science that's based on income share agreements. So in other words, you pay for mentors after you're hired. Uh, Some time ago, finished up actually a PhD in physics, realized that uh, there wasn't that much that you could do with a PhD in physics immediately, but always wanted to start my own company. I did that and ended up doing a bunch of decreasingly ridiculous things, starting with more ridiculous and getting getting more and more practical and, uh, and useful. And this is ultimately uh, what has come out of that. So this is perhaps the fourth kind of company or, or iteration of company that um, I'm working on um, and certainly the most effective of the ones that I've tried so far. It's actually a common thread I've heard. You have people that come from backgrounds that you wouldn't necessarily associate with machine learning, say physics. In fact, I once talked spoke to someone who used to be a lawyer and transitioned into becoming a, a data scientist. So it's quite fascinating to hear all sorts of journeys towards the industry. That's cool. One of our mentees was a lawyer and actually made that exact same transition. So it's, it is actually a possible thing to do. One of the reasons why it's possible is that a lot of the, the conventions or a lot of the standards in the industry haven't crystallized yet. And so mm. it's still today possible to, in fact, most of the people who are currently data scientists have this sort of wonky path that they took into the field. It wasn't like kind of, oh, did a traditional CS degree and did this and did that. But it's only been recently that there's kind of a layer of academia that trains people to be data scientists. Right. I read a little bit on, I think was on Hacker News, one of the, I think was an AMA that you had done about sharpest minds. Can you tell us about what do you guys do? Like what problems do you solve? Right. So we are at the layer between like when you finished doing like an online course, doing some basic schooling, and then you need to get into the industry. We connect mentees to mentors. The mentors are folks who are, um, who have experience and are currently working in industry and mentors work with you uh, without charging you anything. And then you pay them back a percentage of your first year of salary after you're hired. And so what that kind of covers is the gap between knowing the basics, having studied the, the course material, having read the theory, and maybe having done one or two little projects on your own. Here's how real practitioners do it. Here's how to write code that other people can read, for example. Here's how to um, um, do stuff to industry standard. Here's what real people are doing in the industry right now. And it's very hard to digest that into a course curriculum because it Mm. changes so fast. And university curricula and even boot camps and online courses, their curricula will turn over, you know, once a year at the very, very best. But in fact, the frontier of what's going on in industry changes much faster than that. So right. you kind of need in the field who is doing it to be able to tell you how it's done now. So what do you what do you see as the discrepancies between the online courses and what industry needs? What do you think is 
the reason for that gap that you think it's worthwhile stepping into it to fix it? Well, the core reason is uh, it's not economical to refresh a curriculum as frequently as you need to. Um, right. In terms of what the gaps are that we see, it's less a gap between courses in reality. It's more a gap between like what a person of a particular background knows in reality. You'll often have folks who, like myself, are coming out of, let's say, a physics master's or like grad school or something like that. And folks from that background will often know a lot of statistics, a lot of math, and be very competent at that. And they may even be at the point where they can make code do whatever they need to do. So if you'd given me a task when I was a grad student, like make your computer do a thing in code, whatever it was, I could have done it. The problem right. was that the code that I wrote was really terrible. I mean, there's all kinds of concepts in how to write good code, like making things like semantically modular, knowing where to like put different functions, knowing how to structure things so that other people can read. You have no conception of when you're working on your own. Not only are you just writing code for yourself, you're not even thinking about your future self either as a grad student. You're not even thinking like nine months from now or 18 months from now, or two years from now, I'm going to look back at this code and be like, oh my goodness, what was I even doing? What is this right. even supposed to be trying to do? And you're not trying to do that because your time horizon is limited. And also you're just like, you're kind of just trying to get a paper out. And for all the people talking about reproducibility in science, just hard to you know, shoehorn that into a day-to-day -day concern. And, and so there's a lot of constraints that exist as second nature if you code in an organization that do not exist um, if you're by yourself or coming out of an academic. The flip side is true for people who are software engineers coming into data science. They know all of that stuff, but they tend to lack the stats. And that's like a whole other thing. So you have this prospective employees and you connect them with mentors. Then how does it work for those guys to actually get a uh, footing in the, in the industry? Do you also handle that? Do you apply on their behalf? We do, yeah, we do do a whole bunch of stuff around the application side of things. To understand like kind of why that is the case and how it works, like mm. um, the company Sharpest Mind itself mm. also has an income share agreement with mentees. So uh, the mentee pays their mentor back and they pay us back a percent of the first year salary too for the stuff that we're doing. We don't take any money up front from them. And so what that means is that like everything that we do kind of has to be directed towards like, yes, let's get people hired um, as, right. as much as we can, because that is like how we survive, you know, as a company and all of that. And so right. the sorts of things that we do tend to be pretty actuarial. It's actually kind of neat. There's a division between the incentive. If you're sitting across from a mentor, that mentor has like an individual ISA with you and you're worth potentially a lot to them. And of course, mentors right. get into this because they're good people and they are. It's very helpful to have a significant incentive in your favor. You can be right. sitting across from an engineer at Google and they're like, I really want you personally to get hired. Whereas the stuff that we provide and we do is almost more like actuarial scaled tool building rather than being like one, like we, we do interact one-on-one -on -one with our mentees mm -hmm. all the time. But what we try to do is instead be like, okay, let's try to like get the hiring percentages up as high as we can. What's a thing that we can do or build that will get the hiring percentages up across our right, entire right. group of mentees. And so that means doing stuff like reviewing mentees resumes over and over until they're great. Um, right. Same with their, their LinkedIn's and a few other types of profiles, helping them to reach out to companies effectively. And another thing that we do, it's a function of how we're structured, which is this big group of mentors and this big group of mentees. Many of our mentees are themselves have hiring authority at their respective companies. It's, it's not really a cheat. It's good for everyone. One of the things that we are able to do is we actually have an internal job board where 
mentors indicate my company's hiring, I'm open to hearing from mentees who are interested in this company. And so we have this kind of um, ecosystem where you can get a reference from your mentor to another mentor and, and so on and so forth. So that functions very effectively too. So you, you have this mentee, so presumably they, by having a mentor who has essentially access to job portals and may be able to see what skills are typically in demand, even in their own environment, and then hopefully help you out as a, as a candidate to either learn those skills or find a pathway towards, towards acquiring them and then put them on a CV for application. Now, do you have a way of estimating how much income they will make? It all kind of ties into, uh, into itself. We, we know averages actually very accurately of salaries for different areas. Um, but right. I guess kind of what you're asking is like, how do we, you know, how do we check that someone has been hired? Um, right. And the answer is that one of the things that we do, and this ties into our incentives, one of the things that we do is we help mentees negotiate uh, for a higher salary. Um, and so right. as soon as you have a job offer, let us know, because we actually can, like, we actually can get you a significant bump in your salary because like, there are actually pretty straightforward approaches to negotiating that if you know the context and you can help coach someone, you can like fairly trivially send a couple of emails that will likely get you like a few thousand extra bucks. And hmm. in that way, like a good chunk of the time, the sharpest modest part of the ISA actually just pays for itself through just that. And because right. salaries are sticky over time, you're not going to like get a pay bump in year one and not have that pay bump translate over into year two. That pay bump is going to stay sticky. You're going to make that right. extra money. Right. Two, right. And it compounds with your HR raise. Like the calculus of interest is very much, of course, I'm going to tell them about this. It's, it's not just that this whole thing has been in my interest. It's that this one interaction is directly in my interest from a utilitarian standpoint. Um, and right. So, so initial that. salary determines potential increase. You start high, you're obviously all increase, even if it's marginal, yeah. still higher. Right. And, so. and people underestimate the extent to which that's true. Um, even like if you stick to the same company, you get like an HR raise every year, like presumably um, mm -hmm. at, at some percentage, but those percentages compound over the base. So the higher your base is, the more of an increase you'll right. get each time. And on top of which, when you transition from one job to another, if you make that transition, you should, of course, not be saying what your salary is or what your expectations are, but um, you have, it does give you a psychological baseline saying like, right. I'm much and like, yeah, I want the next one to be a step up by like this amount. And so cranking that up, it can give you like a, a huge increase in terms of your expected lifetime earnings. So is, is your focus then simply on employability or rather how much is it just helping a, pr a prospective employee get a job versus how much is it helping them to get a job as a, in a data company or an email, email company? Are you specific to the technologies or the field? We are focused on data science and machine learning, yeah, at the moment. Right. What proportion of data scientists are also now expected to, to say, do some sort of software engineering? I mean, you alluded to this in the beginning, that uh, somebody may be a good coder. Well, they may be able to code, but not necessarily be effective coders in a production or company environment. Do you see any trade-offs that a data scientist must make in those two? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't call them trade-offs because the two skills do complement each other, but there's certainly a range of different requirements in terms of software engineering skill for different data science positions. And it's confusing because they might all be called the same thing um, in terms of job title. They may even right. all have very similar written requirements in the job post on like LinkedIn or Indeed. 
they might look the same to an outside observer, but be quite different. There are data science jobs still that are literally just like, you're on an IPython notebook all day, like digging into a database, and then the stuff that you slam out of your notebook gets handed over to a software engineer to be productionized. Like that's right. a category of job that exists. Um, another category is you're working at a startup. You're basically doing a lot of different things. Um, and so you're gonna have to learn software engineering uh, to, to do what you need to do. Right. And, um, and there's other jobs where you know you are expected to productionize your own code. Um, MLEs are are more kind of on this spectrum. But like, yeah, you should be able to um, slam out something on a, a notebook, but also you want to be able to deploy it on the cloud. You want to be able to understand why it's running slow. You want to be able to you know be able to do monitoring of it. Um, one of the things that's happening recently in the job market is a lot of the early data science models that were built and deployed for companies, um, just like this stuff naturally doesn't work perfectly forever. Like a lot of the stuff that you use to do forecasting just drifts because the world changes. Um, obviously right. the world has changed enormously in the last like six weeks. Um, and, and actually I was talking to um, one of our mentors who works at Grubhub who yeah. does uh, forecasting and they, they right. do demand forecasting is a big part of their, uh, their thing. But like, right. um, it's just like, it completely just like exploded and went completely off the rails through of course, no fault of theirs because even right. the stock market, predict what was going to happen but um you get you basically get the entire spectrum well that, that's quite interesting i mean i can actually you know attest to that i've i've, I've got a few friends just from time to time send me a message hey how do i um i've seen this application but i think they're asking for a software engineer uh and and then i'll say well it's, it's sometimes they are <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then i say well i i, I don't think I'm not so sure, but the only way for me to be sure is to actually read up on the company, look at the types of problems they're solving and say, well, it actually looks more like you will be a software, you will do some sort of coding, but it's primarily using data or making a model and then coding it into production. But I think people get terrified sometimes when they hear uh, that you have to understand what a Docker image is, that you need to be, you have to do... Um, you have to use the cloud, you have to use AWS, Azure, and all of that stuff. Can you speak to the relevance of the different skill sets, say, or say coding, cloud saviness, and just general being a whiz kid in data science? The thing is, like, the ideal balance depends on the job. Um, I would say, like, the job titles themselves are still, like, fuzzy and non-consensus, but, like, really roughly speaking, a data scientist is more like, I've got a data set, I'm trying to make predictions and build models right. on top of it. So in that kind of vanilla context, you know Jupyter Notebooks, you know Python, um, you know some visualization tools. You don't maybe need to know so much, like, data engineering, cloud stuff. Right. Um, whereas... Uh, if you're doing, if you're a machine learning engineer, for example, um, that has kind of come to mean more that you're working on the production side. So like you're building a pipeline that's touching live data, not just like a database necessarily that's, that's like mm. sitting there, but like you're getting events piped into your model. Um, you're del maybe delivering predictions in real time for a recommender system. You're running your thing on the cloud on a server something like that. Um, and I would say that directionally data engineering and cloud stuff is becoming more important as the tooling around modeling has become better and better. So it is becoming easier to build decent models, just like throw them together with XGBoost or some library or something. Um, right. And as a result, the needs of the field are being pushed 
uh, kind of in the next step of the value chain, which is like, okay, like you've got this. How do you deploy right. it? Yeah. How do you build yeah. it, scale it, et cetera? That's a very interesting point. I mean, if I, if I look at things like uh, TensorFlow Hub, well, if I want to create a model, I don't have to create everything from scratch. Some of those models are so advanced that I could simply apply them. So it, it would seem that the number of people that could be, say, true data scientists is reducing and shifting more towards applied data scientists who, by nature, would have to be comfortable in bringing that model into some sort of real-world application that typically means cloud or an app. And I guess that sort of pushes, it seems to be pushing it more towards the ML engineering part. That might be an interesting question a new comma might actually have to, to encounter. If, you're, if somebody tells you, well, go watch Andrew Nang's video on Coursera, um, you know, you want to know which course are you going to take? Are you going to take the more traditional understanding how tensors work? What resources might a, a newcomer utilize that kind of gives them a more holistic approach to the end-to-end -end process? Are there any recommendational approaches at how one could go about it? Yeah, if you already know Python decently, a good one is FastAI. Um, it's a great course. One of the great things about it is that they are, they kind of take this uh, top-down approach where they start you with like, okay, we're going to build a thing that does this. Okay, here's like three lines that do it. And that's it. That's your first thing. And then it's like, okay, now let's dig in and understand why these three lines do what they do. And so right. you can, yeah, so you can, the idea is like building models should be easy, but then as you peel away the layers to troubleshoot, you can start becoming increasingly sophisticated in, in how you apply, which touches, right. like it's much more similar to how we actually do things in the real world. Like, we don't, we don't pop the hood open unless there's a problem with the engine. And right. so like, you just want to drive the thing. It's like, okay, go, like, go, go, go do it. And then, oh no, it didn't work as expected. Like I need to be able to actually, you know, um, open up my, my toolkit and like put a wrench in there or something. Right. Yeah. That's such a nice analogy. Indeed. You don't need to learn how a car works to be able to drive it. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't used to be quite like, you used to have to like assemble your own cars, even as, as of like five years ago, uh, but right, things yeah. have changed. Yeah. I mean, I recall when I started developing in TensorFlow, the very TensorFlow one was almost a different language in its own. I needed to understand tensors and I had to read, you know, linear algebra textbook just to figure out what the naming, the variable names actually meant. And now it's gotten to the point where you just kind of, it's abstracted away because you want to move faster. It's yeah, it's so good now. I remember I uh, I attempted to download TensorFlow the night it came out, and it take it took me about three weeks to get it actually working on my machine because there was no uh, pip package even in those days. Right. You had to, I think you had to download it from source or like use a binary or some something weird had to right. happen for it to work. Yeah, I think we've moved right. so far that understanding, I think Google has also understood that going deeper, understanding the technical content might actually be a detractor for speed. And in the, in the era where the demand for data scientists is more towards productization, you know, there seems to be an emphasis on production as opposed to development. Development is almost like a cookie cutter by now in many, in certain areas. Yeah, that's certainly, I mean, it, it's like, it's about the 80-20, right? Like if you just want to like, a lot of business problems can be solved just by like, okay, what's a quick, good enough solution? And like, that's right. enough and we can, we can iterate on it. Um, a small fraction of business problems are uh, solved at the margin or optimized at the margin where you're actually every percentage point, every basis point right. matters is, right. is dollars and cents. That sometimes yeah. does happen. I, I would say like, it's never 
it's never wrong to like know more, um, uh, have more technical knowledge. It's about trade-offs. Like, is it worth you learning, you know, this for, for 10 hours versus that? And just having like a directional awareness that simple, simple models can solve most things usefully and the bottleneck is usually the data that usually sets you off in the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. One really strong differentiator rather than like, Oh, I built this complicated model. is just like, I went and gathered my own data in a really interesting and effortful way that can differentiate someone a lot. And it's, it's great because it's clear the work you did and, and right. the kind of work that is important to businesses. Right. So we have one minute. So typically the, toward the end of the episode, I ask my guests to, to speak of something that you think is either interesting or eye opening about AI in the industry. Do you have any? One thing that, uh, honestly surprised me a little bit was how little so far we've seen um, our alumni get affected by layoffs in the industry. And so we were kind of, we were worried like, oh, you know, a lot of people are going to get laid off and there's still, right. you know, layoffs coming in the future. But we, we've seen like a limited, uh, limited effect of this on, on our mentees so far. Part of the reason seems to be that data science roles are hard to hire back. And so companies are like laying off roles that they think are easier to hire back first. Interesting. Uh, not something that I thought of before this, but that, that's a very interesting observation. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing this. So, all right, Edward, it was, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, you. and I hope your mentees will continue to get new jobs. <laughs> hey, we hope so. Hope all right. right. Everyone else. <laughs>